Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the too often unknown stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And it feels good to be doing a normal episode again. I know. Welcome back to our listeners after our little break. Welcome to a new dynasty. The Capetians. And this is like our season two. Sort of, yeah. Or maybe season three, because we had Merovingians could be season one, Carolina season two. True. Or season two, depending if you do it by break. I'm counting it all as season one, because it's all in the French I like counting it as different seasons, because then I feel as though uh, we're doing even more. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just like (laughs) counting the episode. So this is episode 30. Damn. But it's actually our 41st episode that we've recorded. So we're nearly at our 50th episode. Even though it's probably like our 60th episode, technically, when we did all those re-records. Oh, yeah. If you include that. Well, I don't think people include that usually. Um, Yeah, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) But if we did. But if you include all of the extra, like, holiday episodes and the um, spectator episodes, it's our 41st episode. Woo! And this is coming out on the 1st of June, which is the same day as our Noble Houses episode is coming out, which we're going to record right after this. So yep. go on to so Patreon. Patreon. Patreon.com yep. slash Battle Royale Podcast. Not Battle Royale, just Battle Royale Podcast. Because that was already taken. It was taken by someone with zero patrons, so rude. No. Um, <laughs> Eliza, would you like to recap our series so far? Really asking me <laughs> to do it? <laughs> Okay. The whole thing. You have one hour. Okay, so <laughs> we start off, you know, with Clovis, and then we skip a few. We get to Dagobert, skip a few more because I can't remember them. Get to a Martel, skip a bit more. We get to Charlemagne. Oh, don't forget Pepin before that. Uh, <laughs> then we've got some Louis, Louis, Charles, Louis, Louis, Charles, 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 blah, 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 and then they die. The end. <laughs> And that's the recap of the season. What about Odo? Oh, right. And chucking some Odo in there with some Viking <laughs> fun. With the Siege of Paris, yeah. Oh, and a chocolate Rollo. And a chocolate Rollo. Oh, I just recorded a quote for the French History Podcast uh, that was about Rollo. Oh. So that was fun. I used my dramatic Viking voice. Cool. Even though I feel so my quote of recapping the season is the best quote now. Yes, that is now the best soundbite in all of podcast history history as far as i'm concerned yeah i really gave a detailed summary of what's been going on yep and 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 then they all died is an excellent uh summary of no it's not 
you were wrong because they didn't all die. Oh, I forgot to add in some um, <laughs> horsing deaths. Yeah, there are a lot a of t- mysterious hunting deaths, which... Um, and don't go into a forest. I was glad last week to hear that Rutger was equally as sceptical about those horse deaths and whether or not, <laughs> you know, they really happened the way that we're told they did. In my mind, they will happen that the way they were told they were because they just make them more memorable, as we've said. Yeah, well, we don't have an, an alternative to go off, so you <laughs> may as well. The, the, so the, the, the Carolingians didn't actually all die because we had Louis V's uncle, Charles of Lower Lorraine, who's going to be right. stirring up some trouble in this podcast. But we will learn the ultimate fate of the Carolingians this episode. So, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Spoiler alert, they do all die eventually. So, Hugh <laughs> Capet, we, we call him the first king of the Capetian dynasty. But this is a bit of an oversimplification since he's not really starting a brand new dynasty. Like, people didn't wake up one day and be like, these are the Capetians now. Like, he's just- He's just rebranding. Yes, he's rebranding the Robertian dynasty, which had already seen two kings, Odo and Robert, as well as the third, Rudolph, who we kind of consider Robertian because he was- he sort of married into them. Um, yeah. Even though he was a bosonid, really. So, yeah, we've answered that question. We, we we got into it a bit with Rutger last episode as a sort of rebranding. Yeah. Um, similar how we changed the Pepinids to the Carolingians after Charles Martel. Though I think there was a missed opportunity to call them the Hugolingians, <laughs> which they could have been called. That sounds like a language. The Hugolingians? Sounds like a Star Trek race or something language yeah star trek yep. species from the planet of hugo lingia so <laughs> but yes let's get into hugh Capet. Uh, stop stalling so um hugh Capet was born around 939 um yeah the son of our old friend hugh the great and mm-hmm. his german wife hedwig of saxony mm. if you remember like, come on i think everyone who's ever read a watch Harry Potter, when they hear Hedwig, they totally think of the owl. They do think of the owl, but they should think of... Of the saint? No, they should think of this Hedwig, who (laughs) was the sister of Geberga, who we did an episode on. But yeah, there was a saint called Hedwig. Yep. I can't remember what she was the saint of. There was the Hedwig's, like, chalice or cup or something. She has a holy grail. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so, um, Hugh was born in 939... Um, but he didn't become king until 987. So I'll have to speed us through the first 48 years of his life, um, <laughs> which have been sort of happening in the background of our last two to three episodes. Anyway, so it'll be a nice little, yeah. little recap. Hugh inherits Paris, Orléans, and the surrounding territory from his father. Uh, oh, inherited nice. Yeah. So it's a little blob basically in the... In the middle of northern France. While Burgundy passes to the middle brother, Odo, who unfortunately dies young. And then to the youngest brother, who's called Odo Henry. uh, Or just Henry of Burgundy. Henry I of Burgundy. Also, uh, Hugh obviously inherits all of the vassals of Hugh the Great. Mainly the counts of Anjou and Blois, who become very powerful as Hugh ascends towards the throne and who we'll get into in our Patreon episode about the noble house. It's going to be fun. Um, So Hugh was only 17 at the time of his father's death. 
Uh, oh, wow. Because while Hugh the Great was quite old, he didn't have kids until his third marriage. So, um, uh, so late in life. Yeah. So, Hedwig of Saxony, Hugh's mother, Gaberga's older sister, was instrumental in helping her sons manage their new estates. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, however, this didn't prevent the former vassals of Hugh the Great from grabbing power after his death. So, of course, we've got we've got Tybalt the trickster, the Count of Bois, <laughs> and we've got uh, Falk, the Count of Anjou, who we'll get into again in the Patreon episode. Um, but in spite of some early misfortunes, sort of grappling with trying to hold on to power, a legend emerged in the 11th century. That, Ooh, I like a legend. Yes. At some point in his early life, Hugh Capet was visited by a vision of St. Walleric, known in French as St. Valerie. He was a saintly hermit from the 7th century who was venerated in cool. northern France. So, he's he's just a random saint, pretty much. Uh, and But the saint <laughs> prophesied that Hugh would found a dynasty that would reign for seven generations. Um. Oh. As it happened, the dynasty actually ruled for much longer than that. <laughs> Yay! But seven here is maybe like the biblical seven, where it's like used to connote a general sense of a lot, you know? Uh, like how the world was created in seven days, blah, 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 blah. A lot of Christians nowadays uh, use that, who aren't creationists, use that as a metaphor for like a while. A long time. Yeah. Uh, seven days, okay. billion years. You know, same diff. Whatever, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, as a curious side note, uh, William the Conqueror would later invoke this same saint, Saint Valerie, um, for favourable wins for his slightly famous invasion of England, Ooh. which embarked from Saint Valerie's monastery at the mouth of the River Son less than a hundred years from from the time we're talking about now. So. That's interesting. I was about to say from today, and I was like, no, wait, we're not actually in that time. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's easy to forget. Um, So, there's some interesting uh, sort of mystical connections between this random hermit, Valerie, and the destinies of kings, which I think is kind of neat. So, in spite of this prophecy, Hugh was well aware that his father, Hugh the Great, had gotten to live to an old age and die peacefully because he didn't try to be king. Uh, yeah. <laughs> unlike his own father, Robert I, who died in battle, and his uncle Odo, who died of stress. Um, so, we're still in a period where Robertians becoming kings has a bad precedent. Uh, yeah. Bit reluctant there. Bit reluctant. Um, so, whether he received a prophecy or not, Hugh would refuse to run for king, basically, uh, until he absolutely ha- had to. Um, And, of course, this sort of self-denial, especially when contrasted to the rather haughty King Lothair, probably only made him more popular. (laughs) Yeah. So, in 978, Hugh supported Lothair in going to war for Lothringia, uh, the campaign in which he sacked Arken, if you'll remember. Oh, yeah. And this led to Emperor Otto II invading France. Until he reached Paris and confronted Hugh outside Paris. And then, if you Uh, remember, two of their soldiers met in single combat, which was quite fun. Uh, Yeah, that was What did we call them? Theodore and Ludwig. And they they had a little fight. um, And it it was like like the mountain versus the uh, viper. Um, And the Frenchman won. And everyone cheered. 
Everyone clapped. So after this little win for Hugh, however, Otto and Lothair made peace and it started to look like they were ganging up on him. Um, You know, he he wasn't allowed to sit at at their table anymore. And he was like... Oh, he just did the kids' table. No, he had to go... um, He had to go in the bathroom. Like, he was like... You know, (laughs) he locked himself in a cubicle. The bathroom's where all the good decisions are made, so he doesn't deserve to be in there. The bathroom being... Rome, in this mm. metaphor. So, <laughs> so Hugh journeyed to Rome, um, ostensibly for a pilgrimage, but also so that he might be able to convene with Otto and maybe the Pope mm-hmm. without Lothair breathing down his neck. Yeah. So, on the way home from this pilgrimage, Hugh was in trouble, though, because Queen Emma, Lothair's wife, oh, yeah. enacted a plot to capture him. But he evaded her henchman by dressing as a servant and hiding in the baggage wagon. Oh, yeah. So that was a fun little story. Good old dressing up. I love that. And then when he got home, Lothair was forced to apologize for raiding Hugh's land in his absence. Uh, And from this point on, he and Lothair Lothair sort of cooperated, sort of. Mm. Um, Yeah. Like an uneasy alliance. Yeah. Well, Hugh was like trying his best to be conciliatory and like make peace. Yeah. Because, you know, his father had been a bit relentless with attacking Louis IV and that had ended in him mm-hmm. getting excommunicated. So, Hugh just wanted to be like a, a pious, loyal second in command of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and he actually stayed out of it when Lothair tried to attack the empire again. <laughs> which, you know, has uh, iffy implications yeah. for Hugh because on the one hand, like... You know, he wants to encourage Lothair to go off and not attack him, go east. But on the other hand, he has connections to the imperial family through his mother. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I can just imagine Hugh, like, having his hands up, taking a step back, being like, eh, yeah, I'm not going to touch this. We'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today. Which was positive for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens. But he, yeah, he he does decide to finally intervene when Lothair put Archbishop Adelbero on tr- trial for treason. So Adelbero, if you remember, he's the Archbishop of Rams, and Lothair, mm-hmm. when he attacked Lotharingia, he imprisoned one of Adelbero's relatives because Adelbero was sort of Lotharingian in origin, and um, this led to a whole thing where, like, Adelbero got mad at the king and the king got mad at Adelbero and, like, supposedly he was plotting treason um, with the empire and that sort of thing. So, Hugh ended up coming down on the archbishop's side. He tactfully Uh, supported the archbishop and pressured Lothair into letting him go from imprisonment. Yeah. After which Lothair had a bit of a tantrum Mm -hmm. before dying of stomach illness. Yeah. So now we have Lothair's son, Louis V, who lasts just under a year before also dying and who also oh. persecuted Adelbero. So, yeah. Yeah. If you remember from last time, Adelbero was on his way to the royal court at Compiègne 
where uh, yeah. he was due to face trial. But instead of being tried for treason, however, Adelbero ended up, you know, having to take a left turn going to Sonley, where the king had died, and <laughs> they needed to find <laughs> a new king. Yeah. So now we are caught up. We're at the present day now. <laughs> the present day being uh, the 22nd of May, 987. I nearly said 1987. 987. <laughs> yeah, 1987. Yeah. Um, everyone's wearing neon and um, yeah, to grunge. Medieval grunge. Yeah. Uh, the biggest obstacle to Hugh Capet becoming king was the last remaining Carolingian claimant, a guy named Charles, Duke of Lower Lorraine, who was the younger brother of King Lothair and therefore the uncle of Louis V. Yeah. And do you remember where Lower Lorraine is in this period? It's nowhere near Lorraine um, in France today. <laughs> not near Upper Lorraine, is it? So Upper Lorraine is actually <laughs> to the south. And Lower Lorraine is to the north because it's to do with where they are on the like Rhine River, which flows north. Oh, so is it what, like Germany? Yeah, well, it's it's like sort of Western Germany... Southern Netherlands, Eastern Belgium, that oh, sort of right. that yeah. sort of area. Um, it's centered on Luxembourg and a few other cities. Oh, so, yeah. You know, let's just call it Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, L L Lorraine Luxembourg. Well, I'm just going to call him Charles of Lorraine, um, and not, not much is going to happen in Lorraine. So just you know, bear that in mind. Actually, he's buried in Maastricht, which is where Rutger was born. So, how's huh. that? So while nice little connection, yeah, a little connection. So while I have spoiled that Charles won't become king, and you spoiled the way he died, I spoiled where. God no, no, it. that's not where he died. That's where he was buried. Oh, difference. Yeah, buried. Um, okay. Where he died, that's more. That's a more interesting story. Um, which Ooh, we'll yay. get to. But yeah, I've spoiled that he won't become king. But that's not to say he wasn't like a huge threat at the time, who was seen as a yeah. viable candidate. So, Louis V, as I said, died 22nd of May, 1987, um, and Adelbera arrived at court just after his death, obviously expecting a trial, but having an election. Met with a funeral. <laughs> Met with a funeral slash election instead. He found himself welcomed with open arms by Hugh Capet, who convinced the assembled jury of bishops and magnates to drop all charges against Adelbera. Probably without any agenda at all. Just out of the kindness of his heart. And then over the next two weeks, more magnates gathered in the nearby town of Sonley. Uh, so near the forest where the king had fallen from his horse. And the election council didn't take very long. Um, <laughs> so just about every lord in France, even Flanders and even Normandy... Flanders uh, having been historically just a nuisance. Stupid, stupid Flanders. Yeah, and Normandy having been quite anti-Robertian and pro-Carolingian. Yeah. But even they supported Hugh Capet's ascent to the throne as they found Damn. ways to demand more power and privileges in return for their support. Oh, okay. The one dissenting voice within the kingdom was the House of Vermandois. So, mm -hmm. the Sons of Herbie. Uh, yeah, who were longtime rivals of the Robertians. Yeah. Yeah. So many in France liked the idea of the Carolingian dynasty continuing, though, um, but they didn't like or trust Charles <laughs> himself. <laughs> so they liked the idea of the Carolingians, but, like, he, he was a bit dodgy. He's not the person. 
So he had been accused of treason against his own family when he plotted against Lothair and Louis. So he'd basically been like disowned from the family almost. Um, oh, damn. Yeah. So upon Louis V's death, Charles wrote to Adelbero, the Archbishop of Rams, asking him to support his claim. And uh, can you guess Adelbero's response? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a big no. Um, he far preferred Hugh. He hadn't fared very well under the Carolingians. Um, and he saved his bacon, obviously. Yeah, so he's like, ah, go be. Yeah. I'll repay. And uh, we didn't mention this, but Hugh Capet also ensured the release from prison of Adelbera's brother, Godfrey of Verdun, who had been captured during one of Lothair's invasions of Lothringia. Oh. Yeah. And he actually ensured the um that that part of Lothringia got got given back to the empire because Hugh Capet's like huh. we're not caring about Lothringia anymore <laughs> it's not you can have it back. it's not my white whale I don't have any claims there you can have it <laughs> which is <laughs> oh finally <laughs> finally someone's giving up on that finally someone's giving up on that suicide mission um so yeah and also Hugh Capet was overall considered better for the church because unlike the recent Carolingians, mm. including Charles, he didn't behave sinfully and commit sacrilege mm-hmm. like burning down Arkham. So, <laughs> I mean, he didn't burn it down, but you know, he, he did some damage. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time we get a record of the holy chrism of oil being used to anoint the mm. new king, which if you remember way back in our patron saint episode, which I don't expect you to remember, but um, <laughs> according to legend, it was it it like this this little uh, vial of oil was brought down from heaven by a dove and used by Saint Remy to anoint Clovis. Oh, that supposedly that, happened yeah, vaguely. I remember way back that. in the beginning of our series. So this is like an old pre-Carolingian tradition that. Hugh Capet is hearkening back to. Uh, to get that connection. Yeah. And we'll get more into this in Enchanté, but Hugh is very intent when it comes to updating the pageantry and symbolism surrounding the king to give the office more of a, like a holy aura. Oh, okay. Which makes sense because Hugh is a lay abbot and he's a very pious man. Um, he has a lot mm-hmm. of power within the church. So he uses that as leverage to make himself a more holy king. Yeah. Um, so, uh, however, even though Hugh had received this giant holy stamp of approval, accusations of being a usurper would follow him for his whole life. Um, of course. As it would anyone who's the first in a dynasty. Um, True. And even beyond him all the way to the 14th century with uh, historian Jim Bradbury citing this as the reason that the achievements of his reign have been, quote, belittled. Oh. And we'll get back to this point in On Guard. But perhaps even more importantly, Hugh also took the step of making his son, Robert II, a junior king. Oh, getting back to that. Yeah. So he has him crowned by Adelbero the, on the Christmas following his own coronation. So pretty soon. Yeah, it is. Because Hugh's already kind of old. Yeah, true. And Robert's already a young man, so... Get back to succession. By the way, this process of making someone a junior king is called association. So, Robert II is associated to the throne. So, and this ensures that there's no need to elect a new king after the king dies. It's 
Uh, so it's like crown prince. Yeah. But like basically he's already king, so he doesn't need to be made king. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, so it's, oh, okay. yeah, it's even more than crown prince in a way. And he's expected to have, you know, duties where he's sort of co- co-ruling with his father. Yeah. And yeah, Hugh Capet's health was never tip top. So the fact that he could drop down at any moment made the association of Robert uh, II yeah. very prudent decision. Um, <laughs> so Hugh makes some prudent decisions at the start of his reign. He also makes mm-hmm. a giant mistake. Oh no. Because he decides it would be a good idea to make uh, a guy called Arnulf, who is the illegitimate son of Lothair, so Ooh. a Carolingian bastard. He decides yeah. to make him the Archbishop of Reims after the death of Adelbero. Um, yeah, which happens soon after he comes to the throne. So, And is that guy, like, supportive of Charles? He pinky promises to support Hugh, mm. but doesn't go well. What, did he have his fingers crossed? Yeah, it doesn't go well. Um, <laughs> and it's really unclear why Hugh did this. Um, he, he claimed it was what the people of Rams wanted. However, he may have seen this as a way to bring peace between the Robertians and Carolingians under his kingship. Yeah. Which his cousin-in-law, Empress Theophanu, in Germany, was pressuring him to do. Yeah. So, that might be a reason. But Adelbero's second-in-command, a guy called Gerbert of Aurillac, <laughs> was the had been the obvious candidate, and he'd been a big supporter of yeah. Hugh. So, it was bad, because Hugh was making this really risky move, putting this Carolingian in a position of power, while alienating a potential supporter. Yeah, that's not good. So, this was a big gamble, and um, it backfires. It backfires horribly. Oh. So, in September 989, Arnulf put his weight behind Charles of Lower Lorraine as claimant to the throne. Charles had already started invading France um, shortly after the election. By 989, he had occupied Lyon, which is the old Um, Carolingian capital. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the capital's now kind of moved to Paris because that's where he lives. Um, Yeah. Although they don't really have capitals in this time, but you know know what I mean. True. Um, The center of power moves to Paris. Um, Yeah. But Lyon is still really important as a city for legitimacy. Yeah. So then Arnulf becomes archbishop, and then he opens up the gates of Rams to Charles. So Charles marches, Arnulf lets him in under the cover of night. So oh. Hugh is now back to controlling only the Robertian territories. All the Carolingian territories Uh-oh. have been taken. That's not good. He's also had to give away a bunch of land to, his, to ensure the loyalty of his vassals, who mm. now aren't necessarily able to help in as in the case of Anjou. The Count of Anjou, a guy called Folk Nera or Folk the Black, was only 17 and he was dealing with, with challenges to his rule, um, as well as an attack from the Bretons in the West. He was the most powerful vassal of Hugh Capet at the time, but he was unable to come help. So oh, that sucks. He's really blundered <laughs> t- trying to take control of both the royal and religious capitals. So Rams along. <laughs> Um, mm. and so he doesn't even have Rams. No, he's oh, lost God. that whole like champagne Picardy era. chunk. Yeah, that's really not good. No, he better get it back. He better get it back. So Gerbert, um, the guy who should have become Archbishop, was captured <laughs> by Charles when he entered Rams. Oh no! Yeah, 
Um, at which point the priest's self-preservation instincts kicked in and he pronounced Charles as the true heir to Louis V. Yeah. However, fairly soon he jumped ship back to the (laughs) cafe camp. Um, And Hugh, realizing his mistake in appointing Arnulf as archbishop, realizing that Gerbert, who was like this renowned theologian and scientist, who was very well respected in France. Should be the one. Yeah, realizing that he should he should have backed Gerbert, and Gerbert's a valuable ally, so he keeps Gerbert close from that point. Um, but he now lost Rams, so too little, too late. Damn. <laughs> so he had to get it back. So in 990, the Western bishops called a council at Sondly, um, which is, by the way, like just north of Paris, so within mm-hmm. Hughes' territory. Um, the Western bishops called a council to resolve the dispute, which Arnulf, the archbishop, refused to attend. And in response, the council, led by Hugh, uh, considered both Charles and Arnulf to be excommunicated. (laughs) But this wasn't approved by the Pope, but, you know, I guess they thought, like, we'll pronounce them excommunicated now, and we'll get the rubber stamp later once, you know, the dust (laughs) is settled. Um, After after we kick them out of Rams, you know, beg for (laughs) forgiveness, not permission. That sort of thing. Ah, yeah. And Hugh's subsequent attempt to retake Long, unfortunately, ended in defeat. Oh. The people of Long were too pro-Carolingian. Charles actually had the mob, like, fighting for him, in a way. God. And he and his troops and the mob sallied forth to, to chase off Hugh's forces. Um, mm. Yeah. So, however- It's not looking good. Yeah. However, unfortunately for Charles- Yeah. His victory came to nothing when he was betrayed. Oh, yay. He was betrayed oh, by the Archbishop of Lens, a man named Aslan, who we've met before. <laughs> Sorry. I just think you know the lion. Yes. This is the same bishop who had supposedly had an affair with Queen Emma. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. An accusation that's always been considered wrong. Um and which was actually put forth by Charles of the Rain. Uh, oh. <laughs> so no wonder Aslan d- decided to get the hell out of there and join yeah. join. He was like, I'm getting my revenge. Uh, there's some great stories about Aslan. So there's a story where um, he escapes Charles's clutches by climbing down a rope from a tower. Um, oh, my God. I love that. You know, Does he then go to Narnia? Scarpers off into the woods. Maybe. Uh, maybe on the way. To Narnia. Yeah, on the way. Um However, he later returns to Charles um, as though he'd had a change of heart. But in reality, he is a double (laughs) agent for King Hugh. Ah, yes. And, of course, it is Risha who gives us the story. So, uh, (laughs) Bishop Ashlan, Duke Charles, and Archbishop Arnulf have this cute little reconciliation dinner um, at which Ashlan pledges fealty to Charles during a sort of toast um, where they mm-hmm. drink and swear lo- swear to be loyal to one another. Quote, otherwise let me perish like Judas. Oh. And then, uh, so here's where the quote oh starts. Oh my God, was there something in the wine or something? Please. No, there was nothing in the wine, but oh. um, here's the quote from Richard. As night was now upon them, a night that was soon to know both grief and betrayal, they decided to retire oh. for the evening and rest until morning. <laughs> As Charles and Arnulf slept, Aslan. <gasps> Did Aslan like open the gate or something? 
Well, we'll see. Aslan, plotting okay. treachery, took their swords and weapons from beside their heads and hid them away. Then he summoned a doorkeeper who knew nothing of his plot and ordered him to hurry and call one of his men, assuring him that he would guard the door in the meantime. When the doorkeeper had left, Aslan positioned himself in the middle of the doorway, holding his sword beneath his cloak. A short time later, his men were before him, all accomplices in his criminal plot, and Aslan let, let them inside. Charles and Arnulf lay still, sunk in early morning slumber. As their enemies stood over them in a group, they awoke to the sight of their foes. (laughs) They leapt from their beds, desperate to get their hands on on their weapons, but finding none, they asked what this early morning visit pretended for them. In reply, Aslan said, Because you recently took this citadel from me by stealth and forced me to go into exile, you too shall be driven from here, but under different circumstances. For I have remained under my own authority, but you will have to submit to another. Charles replied, I wonder to myself, O Bishop, if you recall yesterday's evening's dinner. Does your, your reverence for the Lord not restrain you? Does the oath that you swore mean nothing? Or the curses that were called down upon you at yesterday's dinner? And as he said this, he hurled himself headlong at his foe. But armed armed men surrounded him in his fury, (gasps) drove him back onto the bed and held him down. At the same time, they seized Arnulf. So Arnulf's just just there. (laughs) Watching. Um, When they had... When they had them both under control, they shut them up inside the tower. They fortified it with locks, bolts, and bars, and set guards over them. As the cries of women and children and the wailing of servants were carried towards the heavens, townsmen throughout the city were disturbed and awoke. Those who supported Charles's party quickly took flight and escaped. And that's the story of how Long is retaken in the name of Hugh Capet. Oh my god, I love that. That was so good. Yeah, so this happens in 991, and this is the ultimate turning point in the conflict. Um, So, Lon is retaken by Hugh, and Arnulf is deposed from France. Gerbert was appointed as Archbishop. However, Pope John XV, uh, learning very late about all the shenanigans that have (laughs) been happening (laughs) up in France... Uh, he ruled that the deposition was invalid and that Gerbert should be suspended from his office. Oh. So, sometime around 994, 996, Gerbert actually left France. Um, he oh. moved to the Holy Roman Empire, um, where he sort of rose very swiftly through the ranks. Um, yeah. He started by becoming the tutor of, of uh, Emperor Otto III, um, and within three years, he became Pope. Damn! <laughs> yeah. That was a twist! So he becomes Pope Sylvester II from 999. Oh, I wish he hadn't changed his name. Yeah, well, you know, he's... he's he I know they always as, do he, that. Yeah, he can be known as either. Um, uh, Pope Gerbert, I, I think, maybe doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, I like that. But yeah, Sylvester II is uh, renowned as this great um, sort of reforming pope. pope who, you know, he was very into science, very into abacuses, that sort of thing. So cool. 
So Gerbert slash Sylvester, he's a very fascinating figure, and I can't wait for Pontifax to cover him eventually. But his achievements don't have much to do with Hugh Cafe, so I'm going to leave so that tangent there. Leave that for the others. Yeah. Today. So Charles of Lorraine, meanwhile, he was imprisoned mm-hmm. by Hugh and dies sometime in the 990s. We aren't sure when. Um, oh. Uh, Probably just a couple of years after his deposition. So he was imprisoned in Orléans, so Mm -hmm. far away from his territories. Um, But by the year 1001, his body had been sent to his home in Maastricht, uh, where the sarcophagus was later discovered in the 17th century. Cool. Yeah. So he was definitely dead by 995 because uh, there was a conspiracy to put Charles's son, Louis, on the French throne at that time. So, we've got another Louis. (laughs) Um, Of course. And at the head of this plot was Odo, the Count of Blois. One of Hugh's most powerful vassals. The son of Tybalt the Trickster. So, the Counts of Blois and Anjou are both getting very big for their boots. They've always been loyal Robertian vassals. And now the Robertians have ascended to the thrones. They have also ascended to become major um. lords, yeah. Um, but while Hugh was able to remain in on good terms and forge an alliance with Falk Nera of Anjou, um, Odo of Blois yeah. would be a bit of a menace uh, to the rest of his reign. Oh. And his son, Odo II, would also be a bit of a menace. Oh. Though, because they had the loyalty of Anjou, they were able to block, yeah. it, block Odo from ever sort of beating the king. Ah. Uh. So that's good. Um, it is. But yeah, it's it's, tru- it's troubling, though, the amount of power these vassals now have. True. Um, but Charles's son, Louis, the last Carolingian claimant, he became Duke of Lower Lorraine, like his father, and, but he lived a rather quiet life. Um, oh. He never sought the throne, and he never married or had children. Oh, he learned from the mistakes of his father. Yeah. So many years later, in 1023... When he was about 45, uh, he went on pilgrimage to Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy. Ah. And there he fell ill and fulfilled his last wish to take the vows of a monk before dying. Oh. Yeah. And that was the last gasp of the Carolingian dynasty. Oh. Happened in Mont Saint-Michel. Yeah. Oh. So, that's how the Carolingians end. <laughs> Long story short. You know there's some like weird connection with Son Mount Michel and um Japan. What's that? I don't know why, but when I was in um Miyajima, which is like Hiroshima, I kept seeing all this stuff for Mont Saint Michel. Like oh, and there weird. was like a Tory gate. They like set up like a Tory gate at one point um near the um near it, like near Mont yeah. Saint Michel, so I don't know I why mean, they probably did that, like, but obviously maybe they're like a co- there's a connection there. I mean, it's probably like the like, second biggest tourist destination in France after Paris. Um, yeah. So they just randomly had a Tory gate there for a while at one point. Interesting. I think they're like twin, like you know, twin cities. I guess. Oh, okay, that would be cool. That yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think that's what they are because I now have a postcard of. Um, up on my wall of Mont Saint Michel with um the Tory Gate from Miyajima. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. 
So a little connection to where I am. Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, back in Paris, uh, uh, or, you know, back in King Hugh's land, um, according yeah. to Richer, quote, King Hugh was afflicted with pustules all over his body. Ew. Was that like the plague? Sort of, yeah, I guess. Bubos. Um, and he died at his stronghold in Le Juif. Sounds like he probably had a bad death, a grisly one, in pain. Ugh, I hate pustules. He died in 996 and he was buried in Saint-Denis. Damn, so close to being one fou- to the 1000s. I know, he nearly made that millennium. And uh, yeah, from this point, we can definitively say that Saint-Denis is the resting place because it's back yeah. in royal control. Okay, um, cool. Because it's, you know, in Paris. Um, or just outside Paris at this time. <laughs> it's It becomes the the sort of Westminster Abbey of France from this point. Oh, okay. So the crown immediately passes to Robert II, who we'll, of course, Ooh. be talking about next episode. And even as Junior King, Robert II had already dealt with his fair share of controversy. Okay. He had particularly a particularly troublesome divorce, um, oh. which Hugh had Did opposed. Divorce? Uh, but we'll get into that in plenty of detail. Next episode. Next episode. So Damn. those are the bare bones of Hugh's reign. Um, but okay. I've got a bit more detail about different aspects of it so that we can we can get into Talk those as it. we pass judgment. <laughs> so let's get into Enchanté. Enchanté. I'm going to send you the official portrait of Hugh Capet. Mm, mm, and mm. I also send it, oh, it's actually based on a medieval... Painting, so I'll send you that one as well, so you can sort of okay. look at them. I love together. the hair with the little like curl at the bottom. The little look, yeah, it makes little, you think like nineteen fifties housewife. The little short curly bangs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the tiniest little sausage roll at just yeah. between his forehead and his crown, just like stick, just like peep, peeping out. It's like a nineteen fifties, yeah. And then he's got this lovely like sixties hair that like curls at the end um flowing down yeah and then his oh his scepter is like a hand yeah and if you look at the know what that symbol represents if you look at the medieval image that i also sent um yeah it's got the same hand scepter and it's got similar similar hair and everything so it's clearly directly based on this yeah so in this ninth century one having the Hand scepter with the golden orb with. Oh, he's looking so serious. That yes. real deep stare into your soul vibes. He actually looks a lot like Odo, I think. The depiction mm. of o- Odo. They look very, very Just, similar. It's yeah. almost like they're related. Oh my God, who would have thought? Yes, that's Odo. Oh, so, yeah, they do. Yeah, you can see the, the family the resemblance. Nose and the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. the hair. The hair's very similar. And the hair, yep. Yeah, they got the hair resemblance going on. Got the same little bang. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is, uh, I nearly said that's Odo. That's Hugh Cafe. Um, yeah. And, and I like the medieval portrayal on his giant throne or yeah, big throne. Yeah, we have a couple other medieval portrayals too. Usually they're about his sort of like piety. Um, and that oh, okay. sort of thing. So we've got one where he's like 
in bed sleeping and uh saint valerie comes to him and says you will be king and like that oh sort of yeah thing. he's just having a nice little bed <laughs> like sleep and then he's been woken up and he's just like you i love that he sleeps with his crown on in the, in this you in this, and in has, the like, universe royal, of this like bedding it's like royal bedding i mean they gotta show the that he's blue the king. bedding yeah with the fleur de lis yeah and then yeah. we have him sort of uh Bequeathing Bing. this fancy book to the church. Um, oh yeah, and who are the others around him? Like his vassals? Yeah, like his advisors, his 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 dudes. Yeah, his entourage. His dudes. Yeah, and um, this is actually the cover of the Jim Bradbury book that I keep referring to. <laughs> oh. uh, this 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 picture. So yeah, that's neat. Mm. So those are the. The, the bigger depictions of Hugh Capet. There's lots mm-hmm. of other little portraits okay. and stuff, but they're all fairly similar. Yeah. But yeah, Hugh Capet, he does a bit of work in Enchanté. Because, by the way, in Enchanté, obviously, we don't just judge the portraits. We also judge the uh, the the visual legacy in general. Um, yeah. And uh, part of Hugh's legacy is this whole idea of like the holy king and like um the fact that appointed yeah the whole idea of like the it's not quite the idea of the divine right of kings yet that's kind of a later yeah. idea but it's he's develop he's he's developing that idea um yeah. we have the return of the kings to Saint Denis we have the callback to Clovis <laughs> with being anointed by the oil of Saint Remy and during his coronation at Rams he also used a ritual that was meant to imitate how Hebrew prophets anointed their kings, Ooh. like the kings of Israel. So he's Ooh. he's trying to create this mythical power around the figure of the king. Yeah, and that's really his, the biggest part of his legacy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, and it gets stronger and stronger over time. We can sort of credit it to Hugh because he's like, yeah. I'm not just I'm not just some guy who's been elected. I am the divinely ordained king. The chosen one. Yeah. And that's really the big difference between him and the former Robertians. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do we want to give for Enchanté? Okay. Well, I like his lots of depictions. I I just wanted to give him massive props in this round because he's really working to create that legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to give him for that, like, heart, like, connecting back to the... Olden times to yeah. solidify his reign. Like, he's maybe not visually him... iconic for us. Yeah, like, if you saw it, you're not like, oh, my God, wow. Yeah, you wouldn't see a picture of him and be like, that's Hugh Capet. Um, yeah. But people people know the name Hugh Capet. True. They know that he's the founder of the Capetians and that the Capetians are big. So. <laughs> true, true. Okay. I want to give him a point for having a bloody prophecy because who doesn't love a good prophecy? Mm. That's definitely getting a point with me because I just like that. A few points here and there, I suppose, for the connections back to reinforce. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know his name. I'm thinking like four, three, four. four. Um, yeah, I'm going to go. Four. Okay. I'm, I was going to go higher. Why would he? I was going to oh, go, well, gonna gonna go? go slightly above five because I think it's just some good work. Good effort. True. Um, Actually, I'll go 4.5. You're, you're giving him less than you gave Odo. 
But I guess Odo had those like battle depictions. Yeah, I know, and I do love a good battle depiction. Yeah, Hugh doesn't have any of that. He's like, not- if I saw any depictions of Hugh, though, I'm not going to be like, oh, that's Hugh. Yeah, that's the thing. Okay, well, you... So, can- that's like, unless... Okay, I think I might go 5.5. Point- I think I might go 5.5. Um, no, I'm going to go 6. Actually, I want to go 6. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit generous off the bat here. Okay, so that is a 10.5 for Enchanté. They'll probably say that viewers are probably like, she's so harsh. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I'm always afraid they'll say I'm too generous. So. <laughs> <laughs> I balance Whatever. out. Whatever. Yeah, maybe. Um, so. On guard. On guard. Uh, so in this round, we judge the king based on his success in gaining personal prestige and power, uh, whether that be straight up military victories or smart political maneuvers. So, <laughs> Hugh's achievements have been downplayed by historians ever since he took the throne. No. Oh. So, generally, it became accepted that the early Capetians, especially Hugh, weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> oh. And that they only succeeded due to the incompetence of other people. Oh. There was also a perception that they had no power outside of their little bit of territory around Paris. And that... Oh. Their kingship was merely God. nominal. Like, it was purely symbolic. Historians really hated. Yeah. Um, so, all of their lords were, you know, according to these historians, all their lords were essentially independent, and they had no more, in fact, maybe even less politi- uh, practical power than, like, Normandy or Flanders or Aquitaine. So, yeah. this is all true to an extent. Um However, I think historians nowadays are starting to think this has been exaggerated. Um, yeah. It's definitely not, like, a drastic change from the Carolingians. And it's definitely yeah. not... I don't know. It's a, it's a grey area. Like, sure, yeah. the vassals maybe are getting away with more. But there is still this sense of the king is the king. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to Bradbury, um, he writes that uh, Hugh has been called unimposing, mediocre, weak, and a man of little initiative. Um, <sighs> but, quote, it has been claimed that Hugh Capet's main aim and achievement was to survive. But he did survive, and that was no mean feat. Ooh. So, yeah, he also had to give up some land to for support and loyalty. But this was just like a little nibble on his territory. This wasn't yeah, like yeah. a big chunk. Um, Not a big chunk of the cheese. And it's something that all kings really had to do. Um, yeah. To placate the yeah. vessel. So... Keep them happy. Yeah. Southern France, in particular, was rather contemptuous towards Hugh. Uh, mm. The Count of La Marche in uh, northern Aquitaine at one point got away mm. with remarking, who made you king, in response to a royal <laughs> summons. <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Yeah. Oh my god, ballsy. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the civil war with Charles of Lorraine stopped Hugh from going down and helping and- Barcelona personally. At one point, he promised to help Barcelona fight against the Muslims. But, uh, you know, he got a bit occupied. Of course. But, you know, at least Hugh is sort of thinking about other places. Like, uh, yeah, he's there in his thoughts. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, while there's this whole big deal that, that, uh, past historians have made about, like, oh, the, the, 
Capetians only controlled Paris, and that was it. They're wrong. Well, it's called the Ile de France, this area around Paris. And part of why Ooh. that's supposedly why it's called is because, like, it was like the king was on his own little island. Um, <laughs> and he didn't have, to, he wasn't paying attention to anything that was happening outside of it. He was just, you know, hiding in his castle, basically. But that's not true. <laughs> like, he yeah. did visit other parts of the realm and he was interested in the whole realm. Yeah. Um, Stop giving him a bad name. After Charles of Lorraine's defeat, Hugh also had firm control over the former Carolingian lands around Long and Rams. And he, so he was combining the Robertian treasury in particular with the Carolingian tre- treasury. Oh. And the, the late Carolingians were actually surprisingly rich, um, as he discovered. So <laughs> it was not a huge territory, but it was plenty of wealth and power um, to at least match his vassals, Yay. if not completely dominate them. Hugh was also no pushover, and this is demonstrated in the case of Melan, uh, which is one of the cities he gave away to a vassal, a guy called yeah. uh, Bouchard the Old, the Count of Vendome. <laughs> so Bouchard was a very loyal vassal. Um, he, he appointed his mate, Walter, to govern Melan, but Walter is somewhat less loyal. Oh. And Walter's wife, apparently, because it's always the wife's fault, whispered in his ear and got him to betray King Hugh uh, during one of Odo of Blois' rebellions. So, in oh. response, Hugh retook Milan for himself. He hanged <laughs> Walter. And he strung up his wife by her ankles. Oh. Allowing her dress to fall down. So, you know, exposing her. So, yeah, it's this horrific humiliation that's happening. This was a reminder to everyone that Hugh was not to be messed with. Yeah, he's not just a nice guy. He'll get down to business. Yeah. To defeat the heart. Yeah. Sorry. And as, as, as we will find out if we ever get into medieval torture... People didn't necessarily, like, torture each other in this time. It was more about humiliating people and making an example of yeah. people in public. Well, come on. Death is quick. Humiliation, they have to live with that. Yeah, but it's not like, you know, people were, like, ripping out people's fingernails and stuff like that. Like, that didn't really happen. Like, it was more about demonstrating to other people that, you know, you don't want to do this. Otherwise, you'll have to, you know... We'll put a we'll put be a humiliated yeah, in we'll front put of a everybody barrel over you and make you walk around in a barrel, uh, and everyone will know you as that barrel guy. Yeah, who wants to be called that? Yeah. So though it might seem like as a result of his little territory, Hugh Capet's focus might be very local and parochial. The opposite was true, as mm. we see with his interest in Barcelona. True. Although even though that went nowhere. <laughs> Um, yeah, the thoughts, the intentions, he just didn't get around because he too much other stuff dealing yeah. with. Um, and he had a fair, well, we'll get into it, but he, had a, he, he didn't have that much time as actual king. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, while he did a great job securing power for his son and future descendants, Hugh Capet's reign can't really be called, like, glorious. Um, yeah. You know, he's already an old man. 
he made a couple blunders, big blunders, while gaining power. Yeah, big ones. Like appointing Arnulf as the Archbishop. So stupid. Like historians are still like, why did he do that? Why? <laughs> What's going through your mind? <laughs> like we don't, we 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 literally don't know why he did that. It makes no sense. Um, and I'm surprised a- he's not going. Oh, a woman whispered it to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm surprised. Um, well, no, no, that is the that is the conclusion for some people because apparently he was he was of course uh, trying to appease well, listening to his wife. You know, he was trying to appease the Empress Theophanu, um, because she was oh. like, "Oh, you've got to make pe- you got to reconcile with the Carolingians." So he's like, "Okay." Um, <laughs> um. <laughs> so, <laughs> in a sense, people think it was a woman's fault. Um, of course, they yeah. do. Because it's always the woman's fault, never the man's. Which I find funny because I'm like, men had more power than usually, so. Yeah, it's like, take some responsibility. You can't have your cake and eat it too. No. You can't. Uh, you, going up to your mistakes. You can't or... force women to be second class citizens and then uh, make them take responsibility when things go wrong. Um <laughs> You know, of course, we also probably have to take into account the fact that Hugh was quite strong before his reign. Um, yeah. Because uh, remember, he had that confrontation with Emperor Otto II, basically making him turn yeah. his army around, <laughs> having the two men fight each other outside the gates. Yeah. And he really did a great job holding his own against Lothair. And then the way he seized power after Louis V's death was really mm. good at first. Yeah, first. Bit of a coup d'etat, which is quite good to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then he sort of flubbed it by making Arnold the Archbishop. So, I wouldn't give him a massive trophy, but I'd give him, like, a yeah. little a little gold star sticker <laughs> for, for a job A job little certificate. A little certificate, yeah. Makes you think of, like, primary school, like, assembly, and you get the, the little certificate at the end of term if you were, like, yeah. good at something or whatnot. So, how do we like to score him in, in On Guard? What, what is the score equivalent of the Gold Star sticker? Gold Star sticker's not very high, though. Well, it's not a Silver Star or a Bronze Star. It's a Gold Star. True, <laughs> but it's not a medal. No. Um, it's not a trophy cup. Yeah. But, you know, he's laying the groundwork. Yeah. He's not really in a mm. position to do any glorious stuff. But he's he's you True. know he's starting a dynasty. Yeah, he's stabilizing things. He's getting the show on the road. I agree with that. Like you need to become king, so points for that. Oh, I don't know. This is hard. Yeah, it is tricky. I I I knew this would be very hard rating Q Cafe because he's 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 complicated, and you want to like, like him. He's kind of <laughs> underwhelming. But yeah, he there is something underwhelming about him. Yeah, maybe it's just because I miss battles. But yeah, he's not badly at all. Like he's not yeah. really directly in, involved in a lot of fighting, and he's not renowned as a great fighter. Yeah, he's more sort of pious. Case in point, when he bloody let Charles like take over parts his empire. Yeah, I mean to be fair, he wasn't there. Um, <laughs> he was off trying to gather support. He got chased and- away though. No, he he sort of he sort of left long, and then Charles came in t- took it. Yeah, but remember he tried to recapture it, and then he got chased away. Oh, true. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> he, the the yeah, siege of like long gets broken. Minimum. Yeah, yeah, he lost that. And then the reason why he even like kind of won in the end was because that 
got that bishop. Oh, Aslan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no great military victories, but there is a lot of, like, behind-the-scenes political fighting going on. And he's doing it. He's kind of killing people with kindness in a way. Which is no fun at all. It's no fun, but it's its own... It's it's one way of gaining power, Oh, you merit. Know? True. Um, but yeah, I, no I, I, don't think I'd, I don't think I'd give him above five, to be honest. Yeah. I was thinking, like, three or four. I'm thinking 3.5. Going to be nice. Oof. Okay. Yeah, that's nice for me. I think I'm going to do 4.5. Again. Okay. A bit more generous. <laughs> Um, I was going to give him three, but I just gave him extra point five. I just think I because of his enough. legacy of creating a dynasty, like he's got to get something for that. You know, it's not you know gaining power in the traditional sense of you know yeah. fighting and um, winning. But you know, Robert the First did that, and he got impaled. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> true, true. Anyway, so let's move on to Voulez-vous. Voulez-vous. Hugh Capet was pious, you know, mm. maybe to an extent that's been exaggerated okay. over time. So not Louis the Pious Pious? No, he didn't he didn't he wasn't like self-sabotaging pious like Louis the Pious was. <laughs> but Hugh, you know, he was a devout pilgrim. He always visited holy sites, including uh, his famous. A trip decent to Rome. guy, as they say. He was a decent guy. Um, at one point, <laughs> this is quite funny. At one point, he was on his way to church, and he was scandalized yeah. when he saw a couple making love um, <laughs> on, on the on the just in the street on the way. Um, and he pulled off his his um, fur cloak and he threw it over them to cover them. <laughs> oh my god, I love that! Actually, I've seen that on the streets. People making love. Yep. Hair. <laughs> literally, it was like you know, yeah. And then, funnily enough, they were doing it by a church. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, next time, I know. Get get your fur cloak and throw it over them. Um, yeah, I wish I had that. <laughs> pull a Hugh Cape. Um, but yeah, he wasn't just a prude. He was also charitable. Um, Yay! On a separate occasion, he encountered two poor men fishing. And uh, sort of shivering by by the river, and he threw his cloak around them as well. <laughs> well, he really likes giving out cloaks. He loves Here's giving a cloak. out Here's cloaks. Here's a cloak. Here's a cloak. Does he just carry around like a card of cloaks with him as backup? He just throws fabric at people left and right. But ironically, there's also the story of him forcing a woman to be bound and strung up so that her clothes fall down and show her nakedness. So true. No, good people, or. Deserve clothes. Some people need Bad to be covered. Don't. Other people need to be humiliated. Um, <laughs> you know. But yeah, interesting relationship with clothes Hugh Cafe has. And and uh, let's also remember, he is named after an item of clothing he wore. Um, the Cafe, which is a little hooded cape um, that was worn <laughs> by abbots. So he's putting this abbot identity front and centre to the extent that he's named after it. Um, so, yeah, it was this little white hooded cape that Hugh the Great also <laughs> wore. Uh, um, which is why Hugh the Great was also called Hugh Cape and was also called Hugh the White as well, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, Hugh may have been a bit of a prude, but his wife Adelaide uh, was a credit was to not? his kingship. No, she was she was also great. Oh. Um, and he loved his wife. 
um, so cool. as well. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. sweet. I love that. So the queen was beloved by the people and by the church. Um, she spent a lot of her own personal wealth sponsoring the building of new churches. Oh, she sounds like a good queen. Yeah, and she was an Aquitanian princess, by the way. Um, huh. Yeah. And uh, as we know, the support of the church and rep- and the reputation as a pious king was vital to ensuring Hugh Capet's election and continued support. True. So the queen is also part of this, like, in the background. I guess when you're establishing a new dynasty, you don't want, like, a king who's, like, you know, going off having all these lovers and illegitimate children because that can just create problems. Yeah, that sort of muddies the waters a bit. And we might find that in Robert II's reign. <laughs> We'll see. Um, as much as I love that for scandal, but for this, in this context, I'm kind of liking it. Yeah. So, um, also important in Hugh Capet's reign, uh, it saw the development of the Abbey of Clooney. Clooney. Clooney, as in George. Like George Clooney? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Clooney is an abbey in Burgundy, and uh, it's it's a big Were deal. Were you going to pay homage to George Clooney? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, it's a big deal in terms of monastic history. Um, yeah. So maybe too big to get too deep in uh, because Hugh wasn't involved a whole lot in it. Um, but he did donate yeah. to Cluniac monasteries, which ended up sort of spreading and getting set up all over um, huh. France. So basically, there was this guy in the Burgundian Abbey of Cluny called Odolo. Um <laughs> And he became head of the Abbey in 994, and he oversaw huge reforms and an expansion of his Cluniac order until his death 55 years later. So he's around for a long time. Damn. And this encompassed monasteries like Saint-Denis that fell within Hugh's territory. Mm. Yeah. So it was basically this whole movement to sort of bring monks back into line um, and sort of renew... Uh, monastic sort of, sort of piety and everything, yeah. Uh, no more monks having fun. Yeah, but it also also had a focus on scholarship and making the churches more Ooh, s- centres of learning again. Well, that's good. And Odolo became so powerful that Bishop Aslan made a shady comment about <laughs> King Hugh being the monk and Odolo being the king. Yeah. Someone had some drank some vinegar and was jealous. Yeah. But the thing is, Hugh might be pious, but he's not educated. He can't read yeah. Hugh. Um, oh, damn. So he's more of a like a street smart kind of guy. And he's oh, okay. delegating the sort of intellectual and moral advancement of the realm to a guy like Odlo, and that's a really smart choice. That is. Yeah, yeah that is smart. He's outsourcing. Yeah, it's like it's important to use like your like advisors or like people around you who are good at what they do don't like yeah exactly ignore them so yeah this is this is good for Bulebu hmm. uh the fact that this great sweeping reform starts in Hugh Capet's reign I don't think it's completely a coincidence I can't help thinking it's the result yeah. of this newfound stability under the Capetians yeah yeah so in terms of Foreign relations, uh, Hugh was intent on maintaining peace, especially with the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. He doesn't go to any big foreign wars. He gave up Verdun in Lorraine to Emperor Otto III, the son of Empress Theophanu. So the new emperor, who, remember, was Hugh's cousin through his mother, Hedwig. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so he could rest assured that now that the Carolingians were gone, there was no more fear of France invading Lotharingia. Yeah. At least not for a while. Because um, <laughs> the Robertians just didn't care about it the way the Carolingians had. So, yeah, we've got we've got some nice peace. Yeah, that's nice. It's- and, yeah, speaking of Theophanu, who was, of course, a Byzantine. Yeah, and I love her name. Yes. Yeah. You also at one point made plans to betroth his son Robert to a Byzantine princess. Oh. Um, this never really led to anything. Yeah. There might not have been a Byzantine princess available for him to marry. But, you know, it shows Hugh's interest in the wider Christian community and, like, forging those connections. True. Yeah. True. Need those alliances. So, generally, Hugh's, like, a very good egg. If you stand on his good yeah, side. he is. Decent guy. Otherwise, he'd string you up by your ankles. Um. And humiliate you, showing your parts to yeah. the public. Yeah, showing your knickers. I hope she wore knickers. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that would be... Horrible. Anyway, do they even have knickers then? I don't, it feels like I don't he did that. So, it wouldn't actually. be to show her knickers, okay? I don't think so. It feels like if you string her up, it's not to show the knickers. Yeah, unfortunately. Anyway, so what do we want to give for Volevu? Okay, I'm so digging that everyone loved the Queen, even though I know it's about him, but I like how they have a nice, like, it seems like he's a stable family life, which then reflects on him having a Mostly yeah. stable, like rain. I mean, if you exclude he, Charles, he does have a bit of conflict with his son Robert, but that's at the very oh, yeah. end of his reign. Oh, um, okay, yeah, yeah. He's getting so on, it, it doesn't really affect anything during his reign. Yeah, like I, I said, like if you're not clean, the parts where Charles is involved, I feel as I probably want to live in his reign. It just seems very peaceful. Yeah, you'd want to live, like, in which Paris. is pretty good for a new dynasty. Like you know. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, like, I live in Paris during that time, yeah. And, you know, he's... We we haven't really had this before, where we get this image of this king kind of, like, walking around, doing good deeds. I know, like, and helping, like, being, like, talking to the common. Like, helping yeah. the common folk, like, you know. Being a king, like that image. It's a really refreshing image. He seems very down to earth. Yeah, one of the people kind of thing. Mm. Walk amongst them. I'm digging that vibe. I think it's going to be a fairly high score. Yeah, I'm going to give him, I have to give him a high score for that because I'm totally digging that. Like, and, you know, just chucking coats left and right. <laughs> what are you thinking? But he will string you up by your ankles if, if you get on his bad side. Just bear that in mind. Yeah, but who, you know, at least he's not killing you. Well, he did, he did kill her. So just humiliated he, for life. He did hang her husband as well. So, you know. Yeah, that's the husband. He was a traitor, so you know. Yeah, I'm thinking like mm. a like a seven territory. Yeah, I was thinking like six or seven. Because it all adds up pretty well, and like we don't have like a major yeah. like humongous reform. Yeah, but it's that's the only thing I think that's missing. Other yeah. than that, it's really good. We got peace. Yeah, we got stability. Like, yeah, I'm knocking a few points off for no huge giant reform. And no, and a tiny bit with Charles, like you know yeah. that area. And also remember, he gets well. This is according to the source, which you know we can we can go back and forth on whether it's accurate or not. But he gets unanimously proclaimed, proclaimed king because people are like, True. oh, even though the Carolingian guy's more legitimate technically, we way prefer Hugh. <laughs> True. He's True. just a much nicer guy. <laughs> and they even like his queen. Yeah. 
So what was your score? I think I'll go seven. Yeah, I think seven's a good score. Um, yeah. Because there's not too much evidence, but the evidence that we do have is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a 14 for Voulez-Vous. Good on you. Yeah. That's pretty much the highest Voulez-Vous we've had since Charlemagne. For a while. Since Charlemagne. Yeah. Yeah. He got 18. Yeah. Huh. He narrowly beat Charles the Bald, who got 13.5. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, moving on to Ooh La La. <gasps> Ooh La La. It feels like he's going to let me down no, here. No, he doesn't have anything. <laughs> um, there is the issue of Robert II's messy divorce, but that's Robert II's scandal. Because yeah. Hugh is against the divorce. He's Okay, so you know how he ba- like Aslam wouldn't have done what he did if he wasn't backed up by Hugh? Yeah. Would that count as anything? Or might just, um, you know... It's kind of portrayed in the sources as Hugh not really having anything to do with it. Oh. Like, he does yeah. benefit from it, but it's really, like, Aslan's whole... It, he's the mastermind behind all of it. It's not Hugh telling oh, him to okay. do it. Damn. So, I, I don't think we Is can give him credit for that. No. Um, yeah, he doesn't have any mistresses. Uh, he seems to have been generally honourable and straightforward kind of guy. He, he never betrayed <sighs> anyone. He's very humble and charitable. And we've, re- we've rewarded yeah. him for all of this in Boulevard, but it's not going to get him any know. points. True. And, of course, one of the most famous stories about him is him getting scandalised by two people having sex um, and throwing True. a cloak over them. So that feels like an instant zero, if you ask me. <laughs> Yeah, I have to agree. Oh, I wish I could give him something, but he's too decent. Yeah, he's like actively going for zero ulala, and I think he would be, he would be bothered if he got mortified. Any, any ulala points? Yeah. He's like, how dare you? I'm coming back to haunt you from the grave. Yeah. So that unfortunately is a zero in ulala. Mm. So let's go to La Vie on Throne. La Vie on Throne. The predetermined no. scores of. How long he reigned and how many children he had. So, Hugh Capet had married Adelaide of Aquitaine. Yep. Daughter of Duke William III of Aquitaine and Adela of Normandy. Okay. So, this makes Adelaide the granddaughter of not only our friend Ebler of Aquitaine, <laughs> but also on her mother's side of Rollo. Ooh. So, she's descended from two of our old friends. Oh my God. So, she's a bit of chocolate caramel in her. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. What? It's a chocolate caramel. I thought, Delicious chocolate I thought caramel you were making treat. a somewhat off-color uh, racial remark there. <laughs> no, I was not. I was talking about Rollo's, the delicious caramel chocolate. And I know you don't eat them because you don't like caramel, but I love caramel chocolate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I haven't seen any caramel since I've been here, okay? So by caramel chocolate, you don't mean that she was Afro-Latino. <laughs> No, I mean that she had a delicious chocolatey, creamy centre. Okay. Um, so her so mother- don't be offended, any of my listeners. <laughs> I'm not being racist. I support everyone of colour. to Rollo chocolate. No matter what shade. Okay. <laughs> I'm just referring to an awesome chocolate, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, what? If anything, I'm the racist one because that's where my mind went. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Adelaide's mother, Adela, um, she had been given the rather Viking name Gerlock uh, when she was born. Cool. Um, but I guess changed it to Adela to sort of fit in when Aww. she got to Aquitaine. And I do like both names. 
Yeah, both lovely names. So, with Adelaide joining the family, the Robertian Capetians uh, now have familial ties to Aquitaine and Normandy. Woo! Which helps explain why we don't hear much of a peep from either of those dukes during this reign, because they're sort of allied. Uh, yeah, they were just generally uh, kind of chill. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, my bloodline's part of the royal family now. Yeah. Um, so Adelaide gave Hugh two daughters, first of all. Um, okay. so we've got Hedwig, who married, um, Reginald IV, Count of Mont, who was a mm-hmm. Lotharingian lord. And mm-hmm. we've got Gisela, who married Hugh I, mm-hmm. Count of Pontieu, who was a Norman lord. Okay. Yeah. Pontieu sounds familiar. Pontieu. P-O-N-T-H-I-E-U. Oh, we've talked about Pontion before, but that's a different place. No, I'm not thinking that. It's in Normandy, so, you know, Uh, that that area. Yeah. Or, like, just east of Normandy, I think. Um, So, they also had a son, of course, uh, Robert II. And he was their only son, so there was no question of splitting the territory. Oh, that makes it easy. Smooth succession. Gotta hope he's a good king, though. Well, the Capetians end up being big on the, the rule of primogeniture. Um, yeah. Where the eldest son becomes the one and only king. Yeah. Um, and the youngest sons. splitting of that realm. Yeah. The youngest sons can get, like, you like know, dukes. counties and duchies. Yeah, yeah. But only the eldest son gets to be king. And, you know, that's a mo- it's a moot point here because there's only one son. Um, True. And he had no illegitimate children, of course, because he was a very good boy. So that's three legitimate children, which gives Hugh Capet 5.07 points. For children. Yay! And then moving on to the reign score, he reigned from his proclamation and crowning at Noyon on the 1st of June, 987. Oh, this episode's coming out on the 1st of June. Huh! So on the anniversary when he became king. That's neat. Cool. That's a nice coincidence. Yeah. And he reigned until his death on the 24th of October, 996. Oh. So... That's nine years, three months, and 21 days. Ooh. So around maybe slightly shorter than Odo reigned. Hmm. So that's 1.76 points for how long he reigned. Not hmm. a whole lot, but, you know, a little bit. Yeah. So that's a total Fine. V on throne score of 6.8. Okay. And Hugh Capet's at the exact, like, halfway mark of all of our kings. He's 37th <laughs> out of 71. Damn. Yeah. And what's his grand total? Ooh, let's have a look. His grand total <clears throat> is 39.3. Oh. <laughs> Were you expecting more? No. <laughs> so that brings us to our final question. To the ultimate question. Yes. Yeah. Is he fascinating enough, entertaining enough, Majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, to go through to the Battle Royale Championship, and to be spared the guillotine. <sighs> I really would love to give it to him. This is so but tricky. I just feel so I can't. It's so tricky. I really like him. Like, same here, but sometimes I'm like, I can't justify sparing him, I feel. 
He has some fun stories. Like he he's does. Hiding in the baggage wagon. Um, True. The two guys fighting in the duel at his command. Um, throwing his cloaks. Throwing his cloak over people. Being a nice guy. Um, but would he last on the battle, like, in the tournament? But, I mean, the tournament, you know, it's it's not just about how great a warrior king they are. I think it should yeah. be about more than that. I don't know. I'm very conflict. I'm very much on the fence. Yeah, it's like I want to give it to him, but sometimes I feel so, like, I'm like, like uh. He's the first uh. Capetian. But True. he's not. You want him to be this glorious founder, like a Pepin or a Charlemagne, but he's just not. But he's not. I know. And that's just the reality. True. But there are fun stories. The prophecy. True. Do you like Saint a prophecy? Saint a dream? Like, there are just, like there are just some good moments that I have been missing from our recent episodes. True. But, True. Like, in a similar way to, like, Odo, like, sure, he wasn't the greatest king, but we had a lot of fun in his episode, and that's why we spared him, because he was interesting. Okay. I don't know. What do you think? Okay. It's up to you. You're you're kind of convincing (laughs) me to spare him. Like, I don't know how long he'll last in the tournament. He would be our lowest scorer who got spared. I don't look at score when I think about sparing. Okay. Literally, I don't. <laughs> no, I that, ma- that, that makes sense. Yeah, we're, we're not really meant to. You, what are you going with? Because I have a soft spot for him, I'm kind of biased. Mm. Um, it's similar with, like, Louis IV. But whereas w- with Louis IV, you were like, nah. Like, yeah. you haven't convinced me. Whereas now you're sort of True. on the fence. True. I do love a good prophecy. <clears throat> I feel like we're going to have... I know We're gonna I have to fast forward through all of this deliberation because, yeah, guys, we are thinking hard about this. This isn't yeah, a throwaway really decision. I know. I'm like really weighing this up. Do you want to flip a coin? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's do that. I don't have a coin. Um, I've oh, got no, a Japanese yen. Oh yeah, flip a Japanese yen. You do it. So <sighs> heads. He he keeps his head. Uh, they don't have heads. Oh, they have what do they flowers have? and one hundred sign. Okay. Okay. Which where no, which should be which? Oh, what, what we oh, haven't said. Oh, you're right. <laughs> um. Have you flipped um, it already? Yeah, I did. I'll reflip it. Yeah, no, reflip it because we had not decided. Okay. <laughs> Flower is he lives. Okay. 100 is he dies. Okay. Okay. Well, three, two, one. Oh, he landed on flower. He lives. Oh, yay. So, Hugh Cape, first of the Capetian dynasty, has been spared from the guillotine. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. I am personally happy to see him up there. 
I'm like not that disappointed that he's been spared. Yeah. Like I'm not disappointed. So I think I think we made the right decision. I'm happy with it. Okay. The I coin, think, the yen answered. I think you shouldn't have to be, you know, I'm not I'm not listening to this whole toxic masculinity idea that you have to be this big bravado guy to make it in this world. True. <laughs> I think you, you can just be a generally nice guy. You can be a nice guy, you can have a softer kind of leadership that makes True. people like you. And you, you want to be likable. Yeah, you can still sound a chance. And if you think about it, I suppose now that I'm convincing myself, he was like voted in. People liked him enough that they wanted him to be king. Yeah. I mean, you basically... could say the same about Robert and a couple other people who got guillotine. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is at least now we have more evidence of like why that True. might have been the case, you know? And he's really working to like create that dynasty. And, True. Make it. He's really, you know, he's a really, he's a real forward thinker. He's not about his own Mm. personal glory. He's more about like, how do I sustain this and like make everything stable? So, you know, I think. Yeah, cares about the people, which is what you want in a king. I think that's a different kind of strength that we haven't seen a lot before. True. So. A caring king. I'm glad he's been spared. Okay. And that's. Oh, that's all we have for the episode that. today. Yeah. Thank you so much to our first group of Patreon supporters. Woo. We've got Andrew, Chris, and Louise. Thank you very much. And in yeah. our VIP box, we have Adrian, Courtney, and Roberto. So thank you. You guys have thank gone you. above we and beyond. Love you. Like we haven't even we haven't even released any released Patreon anything, content. And you're already <laughs> you're already oh. there. So thank you so much for for we doing that you. extra month. Um, also, thanks yeah. to other people who have given us donations from uh, on Kofi so far. Kofi. So that's Carrie, Eric, Sophie, and Louise, um, and Roberto as well. Um, and um, that's still available. So if, if you guys want to give us directly, like a little bit of money. A cup that, of coffee. And pa- and Patreon takes a cut of the patron donations. So, whereas Kofi doesn't take a cut. So, if you want to, like, give money directly that's and you don't really need the bonus content, that's a good way to do that. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, go to patre- patreon.com. Help slash- us pay for all the equipment we bought. <laughs> oh, yeah, we bought so much. Um, so go to patreon.com slash battle royale podcast. Um, and we will actually have content there now as of today. Um, we will be releasing our first, first, first of the month episode, which is on the noble houses of France. Um, which I think we're going to record right after this. We also need more people to sign up to the movie night tiers as well. Oh yeah. Because we've got a three way tie in the vote uh, between <laughs> Ratatouille, Inglorious Bastards, and Vikings for what we're going to watch. We just need one more person to break it. Yeah. So you can vote for that until the 8th of June. So for the next week after this comes out. Yeah. So do that. That'd be great or else it'll be, uh, I don't know how we'll decide. Yeah. So that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>